0: Hey everyone, this week we're talking about Inside Llewellyn Davis, the 2013 film by Joel and Ethan Cohen. We highly recommend you watch the movie uh, before listening to the episode, otherwise it'll probably be a very boring conversation. Uh, so Mike, what is Inside Llewellyn Davis about? Well, John, the times, they are
1: a-change-it, as the titular focus of this star-studded biopic reminds us. Inside Llewellyn Davis invites us into the creative world of mainstream show business, where, like a rolling stone, its fast-paced story captures a day in the life of up-and-coming star folk alters Bob Dylan, and or Mumford & Sons, and or you, John Devine, as they rise to stardom. I'm still not entirely sure who it's about, though. All I know is that it ain't about me, babe. What happens when one lonely Mr. Tambourine Man finds his love, catches his big break, and finds himself tangled up in blue? Find out! As the Coen brothers, two up-and-coming rom-com masterminds, take fans all along the watchtower, capturing every grain of sand from each important moment of the life of such a great American hero. A film that will leave audiences shouting, I will be released from the bondage of crap like Walk the Line, Ray, and all those other stupid movies. That's simply pale in comparison
0: to this inspiring yarn. I'm not totally sure if this is how it works, but I think, I think you can get the Nobel Prize now. Thank right? <laughs> you. Thank you. I think that you. that's how. This might be I my masterpiece. I think you qualify. <laughs> uh, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Welcome again to This Film To Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two uh, film geeks take the films that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Hello. And like we said, this week we're talking about Inside Llewellyn Davis, a 2013 film written, directed, produced, and edited by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, it's about a fictional folk singer's Odyssey through New York and Chicago over one week in 1961. Features Oscar Isaac in a breakout performance. Uh, I want to read, before we go into anything more, I want to read this quote from Joel Cohen about the movie. He said this after the movie. He said, The film doesn't really have a plot. That concerned us at one point. That's why we threw the cat in. I don't know. (laughs) Had had you heard that quote? No, that's great. Isn't that incredible? Uh, So, Mike... We we always start by talking about our history with the movie, kind of our experiences with it. Before we do that, I do want to ask: Is this the least rewatchable movie we've done on this podcast? Yes, uh, <laughs> it's yes. it's got to be. If if not, I think the only real contender for you and me would be like Interstellar, just because it's so long. Sure. Um, but this is this is a brutal watch. Which I wanted to ask that at the beginning because I suspect, like me. You have not actually rewatched this movie very often since the first time you saw it. I had never rewatched this movie since the first time I saw it and I hadn't I, either. I was trying to I, I was I was giving you the credit in case you had but I was, yeah I know I, I have yeah.
1: I was sitting with my wife uh, at dinner after uh, I watched it during the day on my day off and she was like so how is rewatching it and I was like well it's just as depressing as the first time and then we <laughs> changed conversation so
0: and <laughs> frankly, a little more depressing than I remembered. I don't know. Actually, I, I can tell you very explicitly why. So, I'll, so just very briefly, I can talk about because I watched this uh, not when it came out, probably two or three years later. Um, I heard good things about it. I actually have a kind of on and off again history with the Coens. I think, like everyone else, I'm in there for like the really big, the the highs, you know. Yeah. Fargo, amazing. No Country for Old Men, amazing. My my personal favorite is Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Ugh. Um, I know, I'm not a real film person, but I just really love that movie. Uh, Having said that, I do think people just very, I I think people give them a little too much credit sometimes. I think some, I'm just going to get this out there real quick, and if people stop listening, that's fine. I think True Grit's a a truly terrible movie, (laughs) and really made me like go back and think, are these guys actually good at making movies? I just think it's really bad, and I think there's a lot of things in it that I, that I just don't get. So I've always been on and off with them. And I, I kind of went into this movie with some trepidation because I'm also very on and off with uh, biopics and specifically music biopics. Obviously, this isn't a real figure, so that's a little more complicated, but uh, it still is a f- functionally a biopic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I thought it was incredible. I I, I loved it. Uh, I, I think that... I actually want to say even that you might have recommended I watch it at some point. I think it could have been that much later than when it came out, somewhere around 2015, 2016. I might be misremembering that. No, but, yeah, I think that's but right. yeah, But, yeah, I mean, I, I was completely in. I, I think it's, a, it's an incredible music movie. Mm-hmm. And it says a lot of very fascinating things about art and about music. And there's aspects of it that are made very well. It's it's Oscar Isaac in this movie is one of my favorite performances ever. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so there's a lot of things to love. It is depressing as hell, though. And I did not rewatch it until this most recent time. Um, it's depressing, but it's not even tragic or sad. Like, it doesn't even end in a bad place, technically. Um, it's just the course of the movie, it very much wears you down. It's yeah. Yeah. kind of like the guy himself, you know? It, it just becomes a a slog kind of yeah yeah but yeah yeah what's your history with this movie slash i guess a little bit with the the cohen's yeah the
1: film could definitely be summarized as a scene where he steps in snow and then he takes his shoe off in the diner and he's like trying to yeah warm his feet and he can't because his foot is forever cold and covered in slosh and you're just like yep that's how this movie made me feel um and then he gets kicked out of the diner yeah 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 yeah. so (laughs) great great detail (laughs) So I, I think you're right. I, I also saw this well after the fact. Um, it had a weird release. I actually don't remember this movie coming out, as weird as that sounds. Kind of um, under the radar,
0: I think. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have, like, a source for that. It just feels like it was. I don't, I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and I guess I'll just talk about the impact and then the Coen brothers themselves, because I think I didn't seek it out when it came out, because I was a little tired of the Coen brothers. Yeah. Um, and I saw it maybe a year or two after, and I definitely remember being like, "John, you should watch this." And I remembered that because I was like, "I know we both are on the same page about Coen Brother movies," and I think I told you this is the by far their most personal movie I've ever seen, where you really feel right. like there's a level of empathy or a level of themselves in this that, apart from maybe a simple man, they have in none of their other movies, at least a serious man. To. Oh yeah, serious man. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah serious man. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah. Um, apart from that, I, I don't. That's one of the things I don't like about the Coen Brothers is I'm like y'all seem so detached from your own work, um, in a way that's kind of disconcerting. But that's a whole other thing. But yeah, when I saw it, um, you know, it really impacted me. I, I remember thinking that this might be my favorite Coen Brother movie. I remember, I definitely feel like it was the only movie I've seen that I, them where I had like a really strong emotional response to what they depicted. Sure. Apart from just like, awe at some of their better work or you know, humor or whatever else. And I guess that kind of leads me to the Coen brothers. You know, I think for me, I do think they're good filmmakers, but I think what is underplayed is that they are way more hit and miss than most people acknowledge. Like, I really sure. think when they are, when they make a movie that I do not connect to i really don't connect to it like true grit is a perfect example um but then they have these peaks where it's like you know big lebowski and no country for old men that are such profound blends of like uh realism and humor that i really appreciate you know i think what i almost never appreciate about them is that i don't always love their characters or tone And I absolutely don't care for their worldview. Like, I get it. Nihilism is fun. Sure. But, like, good Lord. (laughs) I don't think any director pair capture despair in, like, a more crushing, you can feel it kind of way. And that's true in this movie, but I think this movie is more personal, so it doesn't have the same detached vibe that
0: really turns me off from a lot of uh, that atmosphere in their movies. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I would even go further and say it's almost a war within themselves. I sometimes see where it's like – I I think sometimes they use the detachment for comedy purposes. Yeah. Because, like, there's a famous quote that tragedy is just comedy zoomed out. And I think they use that all the time. And zoomed out in that context meaning, like, detached, like impersonal, you know. And and if you make it very cold – tragic things can be unfolding but it can play really funny and they do that a lot i think that's at odds with the way that they want to portray that worldview and and it works often when they go broke for one or the other but the times that they mix the two together it feels it just doesn't feel right because then it's just a detached view of nihilism which you're just like cool i don't don't need to i don't need to yeah exactly like Um, it's
1: really funny like my favorite movie by them is definitely no country for old men. And I say it's funny because it's a wholly unenjoyable movie to watch for a lot of it because yeah. of what you just said. It is a perfect example of what you just said. Um, and then on top of that, it also is like, for me, one of the greatest Oscar robberies of all time that it won over There Will Be Blood because that kind of highlights the epitome of the Coen brothers. They're good directors, but they're not Paul Thomas Anderson, you know? And sure. the idea that even their best work, winning Best Picture, is something that I am agitated over, um, <laughs> kind of tells you what you need to know. But again, we're being hard on them. So, I still so, really enjoy So you're enjoy saying them.
0: this is a this is a pers- this is personal between you. Now. Oh yeah. Like yeah. If you, yeah, if yeah, you got yeah. lunch with them, the first thing you would ask is, so do you feel good about that? About that win in 2008? Hundred percent. Was- <laughs> uh, well, the second, the first thing I would ask is, what do you
1: think about There Will Be Blood? Because that's what I ask everybody when I first meet them and then yeah. if they say it's, that's how you
0: met Ricky yeah 100%. she was. That, you guys didn't date for Dude, a couple years because she was turned off by that I'm, she was like that was a little weird. I, I'm
1: throwing her under the bus uh, she fell asleep the first time we watched There Will Be Blood together <laughs> and I have I, never forgiven her
0: <laughs> but... I'm going to say that's I, I know we. We're, this is not the There Will Be Blood episode we will have to do that at some point I'm going to say uh, mm-hmm. that's maybe a little justified the movie starts with a 30 minute sequence how with dare no you? dialogue how dare you so like I, I it's okay I, I mean the movie's amazing I'm saying yeah I, I accept that yeah anyways yeah. you were saying well no that's about it that it, it just again it just highlights how I feel about
1: them they there are movies yeah. that they make that I love that I think are great cinema I just don't hold them on the same level as our PTAs our Scorseses our Tarantinos and I think that's telling in how I respond to their movies so
0: yeah I, I totally agree well, with that, let's go ahead. We have, a, we have a lot to talk about here, maybe a lot to talk about. Uh, I certainly have long notes, but like we were saying before we started recording, I don't have many notes, so it will be interesting to talk about. But uh, we divide the, the way we discuss the movie into a few different sections. We're going to start with what works about the movie. We're going to go into what maybe holds it back, uh, what it you know could have done better, talk about some stray thoughts that we have, and then we've each prepared an essay way, way later in the podcast. But for now, we're going to start with what works. Why does this movie work? Uh, if you're okay, Mike, I'm going to go ahead and and just put one out on the table. Um, I already hinted at this. Oscar Isaac in this movie is delivers what I think is one of the best performances I've ever seen. Amen. And um, amen. And like... You can start, I think a lot of people would start with the music side, which is fair, because it's incredible that he is actually playing oh, yeah. and yeah. singing in this movie. And it's like not, it, it, it's not like, like, you know, he's faking it. Like, I, 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 do, I have played quite a bit of music. And I could say he is really doing all that, and like that is hard. That is not easy stuff to do. It made me look up. Did he start as a musician and became an actor? Yeah, right. Yeah, he did actually learn everything for this movie. Uh, A really cool story I actually heard about uh, the the work he did in this movie. So he T Bone Burnett worked closely with the Coens on this movie. He has uh, been their music consultant in other movies as well. Uh, he did a lot of work with Oscar Isaac specifically. Oscar Isaac tells the story that when he first met with T-Bone Burnett about uh, this movie, about training kind of on music for this movie, he said, I, I came in the room, T-Bone per- put on a Tom Waits record and left the room. And I had to sit there and listen to it for an hour. And That was how my education started. That is so cool. That's, That's not funny. really an Oscar Isaac story as much as a T-Bone Burnett story, but all the same. So yeah, from a music perspective, he just knocks it out of the park, and it's amazing. Like some like the performance at the end of the movie is just that. And and even kind of going back a minute, when I think about this movie, uh, part of why all of the depressive stuff almost surprised me on the rewatch this most recent time is because I don't think about that when I remember the movie. Mm-hmm. I usually just think about the music, and I think about like that last performance of uh, "If I Had Wings," and I think about you know. When he's singing to the uh, to the record executive um, uh, Grossman, Bud Grossman, uh, I think about those songs, and yeah. that's what I remember most from the movie. So he just kills it with that. Uh, on top of that, and I'll give you a chance to to gush in a second. But on top of that, beyond the the music side of it, I, I think he's just perfect as Llewellyn. He's perfect as this melancholic, you know, angry. Uh, Musical snob, financially desperate, but despite all of that, just a little bit charming, just enough that you you do want to watch him. You do want him to do better. You you are invested in some way. It's this fantastic creation of a character who's kind of terrible, but has this kind of silver lining to him, um, and is mostly just circumstantially down on his luck. I just think he renders all of that perfectly, and it, it's it's. Like I said, it's this fantastic creation almost between him and the Coens and the writing and everything. Uh, what do you think, Oscar Isaac in this movie? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. Um, the music is the music
1: as a performance is phenomenal. You know, I, in a weird way, I kept thinking about the movie Once, where what I love about yeah, I, I had that written down. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Where I, what I had a, what I love about Once is it's a musical in which none of the music feels like a set piece, right? It's, they're actually just playing music together and yet it's still a musical because they are giving exposition. They're engaging, they're expressing emotion that isn't coming out through normal dialogue in the film or backstory. And I feel like this movie does that like in some phenomenal ways. I mean, the last song is a perfect example. It's like, you are watching this guy really tell his story about Mike, this partner of his who has killed himself. Um, And really, his whole story, as he kind of comes to the end, that is the beginning. But we'll talk about that later. And I I just think that's so much of that is incredibly hard to do if you don't have an actor who is able to both play the music itself and then also fill out the character. So there's a double-sided coin to that that's incredibly hard. Um, And he nails it. I don't know what this movie is without Oscar Isaac, but it's not as good. You know, I think what's... It's funny... Yeah, go ahead. Go on, go on, go on.
0: I was going to say very briefly, uh, first of all, we, we got to do Once at some point. Uh, I never I even Once. thought of it. But, love Once. Uh, I love that movie. But uh, that's almost more what I thought. Th- that's why I, I, I wanted to look up if he was a musician. Because Once is that reverse, where yeah. they are all musicians being, becoming actors. So, again, it just makes it more surprising to me that uh, he's just an actor and he makes all of this work. Anyways. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, the performance itself is singular. In Coen Brother movies, and I mean that going back to kind of how this is a very personal, empathetic movie in a lot of ways. Um, I think a lot of their character, like they draw great performances out of people. You can't say anything bad about like Javier Bardem in No Country, Mm -hmm. but this is a singular, I feel like, emotional performance when it comes to the Coen Brothers' body of work. Um, He has such a heavy, like, burden of work in this film. To really carry so much of the internal emotional state that you're going to need to feel, if you're going to in any way connect to Llewellyn, to to care about this weird plot structure, to want to stick with it, um, like you said, he has to juggle that melancholy and the charm. Uh, he, but he also has mm. to capture just that. We said we hinted at it earlier: the fact that this movie just wears you down. Like he he has this capacity as an actor for these long blank empty stares that communicate so much that the dialogue does not right. Uh, yeah. Does anyone stare with despair as well as Oscar Isaac does in this movie? I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. Well, cause and I was even, and I'll, I'll this is the last point I had on him. I was even thinking about one of the strengths of this film, I think is that it captures grief and regret really well. Mm. And you know, on one hand, that's a choice by the Cohen brothers. I think it's a really smart decision to drag out the backstory for what happened to Mike. I think that's a really good choice that they they kind of feed it to you piece by piece. And then, you know, you have these two moments of reveal where he's talking to Mike's parents and then the ride with John Goodman's character. But what I think is so fascinating about his performance in terms of how he makes that decision work is how he shows this character whose grief is buried and then it only comes out in these two really unhealthy ways, right? It comes out as hot emotion when he blows up at Mike's parents. And then it comes out as just flat retelling of what happened when he's just pissed off at John Goodman. And he basically just comes out and says as flatly as any line in the movie that he jumped off the George Washington Bridge. Right. Yeah.
0: And I think that's such a that's such a gutting scene. Yeah. Goodman's character, who's such an incredible uh terrible person <laughs> yeah. says the george washington bridge <laughs> so <good>. that's not <laughs> what you jump off of and you're just it's that's it's again it's almost funny but mostly it's just depressing yeah anyways keep going well no that's it i was just gonna say yeah that
1: the the way the film captures grief and regret is in part choice but so much of it is how oscar isaac acts out that repression that you have to have to get why he is the way he is because of this tragic yeah. event right
0: I completely agree, and actually, I, I mean that was a that was an entirely separate point I had, but you you essentially covered it. I was just going to say in terms of what works, the way that, that Mike hangs over this movie and, yeah. and lives in the shadows, but almost never comes up. And like it, one thing I noticed on the rewatch is that Llewellyn literally never says almost never says anything about him. The car nope. ride is one is a, I think the only time he says more than like two or three words about him. And otherwise, he barely comes up in the whole movie. But just in the way that... I I think the scene I remember most is when he's talking to Gene in the park. Yeah. And she says offhand, I miss Mike. And he has this look for a second. And then he just moves on and he starts talking about something else. And stuff like that, again, it's acting. It's it's acting, right? Like it's, it's that... You know, he's he's conveying so much just with the way that his his expressions are. He doesn't have to say, you know, I miss him, too. And he doesn't have to say I'm angry about this or whatever. You just you sense it and you feel it not even not only in that scene, but over the rest of the movie. Well, I think it's great. Well,
1: yeah. And it's this character is wholly unwatchable. If you do not in some way empathize with the weight of his loss and the weight of his loss, like you just said, is not communicated by his words. It is communicated by the emotional physical performance that Oscar Isaac gives in very small moments. Like you just mentioned. Um, yeah. And I mean, cause if he doesn't give this performance, that last scene with the music exec where he says you should get a partner and he's just like, yep, that's good advice. Yeah. I think Ooh. is the line. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't yeah, hit. Like that. that doesn't hit you in the gut like it does in this film if he has not given such a impressive performance. So, yeah.
0: well, and, and even the follow up, because um, he because he he says something like I had one, you and Grossman says together. you guys should get back together, and Ugh. you're just like, oh Oof. my god, it's Oof. brutal. Wolf, Eddie, yeah, Oof. it's a yeah, it's a it's a heavy movie at times. Um, yeah, yeah, which.
1: Well, well hold actually, on. let's yeah, let's talk ahead, ahead. A, yeah. let's talk a little bit about some of the other
0: uh, members of
1: the cast because I think this is a a, sure. a pretty good ensemble movie. You know, I think Carrie Mulligan crushes it. I really felt like she.
0: This was in the middle of a a, a bit of a renaissance. I don't know if it's a renaissance, but uh, uh, she was having a moment because this is right around Drive too. Oh I believe, yeah, she's right? just she is. I don't know if it's a moment or if she is just quietly
1: one of those actresses that it makes everything she's in better. You know, that's how has I feel. always got to. Yeah. yeah. She's just not in big movies very often, but I've never seen a Carrie Mulligan performance that hasn't elevated the movie. Um, Even if it's not a great movie and she doesn't make many not great movies. So, and I mean, I don't know. I felt like the vitriol and disdain flood out of her. Like I felt like she hated me with some of her line yeah. readings. So um I don't know. Do you have anything about Carrie?
0: No, no, I completely agree. It's one of the most, it's it's such a it's a little bit out of type for her. I want to say too that she doesn't usually portray someone so seething in anger, um, but she it she crushes it. it yeah. It's it's amazing. It's an amazing role. Uh, I want I want to shout out my boy Justin Timberlake. He's in it. Uh, he's in this movie. He's in it. He's not in very much of it. I do kind of wonder if like they couldn't get him for more of the movie because the amount of time that they spent at his apartment without him there. Is a little weird. Yeah. Um, sure. From a filmmaking standpoint. But other than that, every time he's there, I think he does such a good job of like the. He's the successful version of Llewellyn, sure. slash the sellout version of Llewellyn, depending sure. on your perspective. Sure. Yeah. But uh, he kills it. He's also obviously brings his own immense musical talents to the film as well. Um, I also briefly, the only other person that I. We can talk about more people if you want. The only other person that I made a specific note about the Coen's must see something really sinister in John Goodman <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because like they bring him for like extremely dark roles a lot. Not all the time. Cause you have him in like big Lebowski. He's not, he's, he's pretty fun and eh, stuff like that. He's a little dark in that but movie. But I think about, I think about, Oh brother, where art thou? And I think about this movie and I'm like, they really just, yeah, they see something evil in this guy. Uh, cause he, yeah, he portrays like a very dark uh, I guess he's a jazz guy on this road uh, on the road. And he um, spends most of his time criticizing what he calls the cowboy music that Llewellyn plays and getting shot up and ODing and um, just being a, a despicable human. Um, and he kills it. He's great at it. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. I, I, think I've always kind of mistrusted John Goodman because of Oh Brother Where Art Thou? and, uh, also maybe this movie more recently well
1: have you seen have you seen cloverfield lane i haven't and i was because thinking that the whole time I was like, a, i've yeah. also been
0: told that's a that's the same kind of thing right oh
1: he's he's a monster in that movie it's deeply disturbing um but what,
0: what anyway a God, man. What
1: a um, yeah yeah he's any he, you know i'll talk about this in my monologue but the way that like i think it's very intentional that he it's like a play within the movie that It's kind of like Llewellyn Davis gets in a long car ride with his future self, this jaded musician whose genre has died and he never made it. Um, and you need someone who is just like exaggerated in their vitriol and their disgust and they are just a despicable person and well, John Gedman delivers. So I don't know, maybe they (laughs) did see something, but he's good at it.
0: So no, he's great. Absolutely.
1: How about that? Uh, random early Adam driver performance. (laughs)
0: I have a I have a lot of comments of that random early Adam (laughs) Driver performance. I think it's great. I mean, the the only real comment I have is, "What a god man," he's, (laughs) and he's in the movie all of like, I think ten minutes probably combined, and most of it is doing those weird effects in that song. I think it's and it's there's a there's two sides to this. It's a great performance it's also a great detail for them to put in because that kind of song existed. Oh yeah. And that kind of person in that kind of song existed. Who's just adding these weird, of uh, these weird like little comments. Um, that's a real thing. You can go back and listen to songs that do similar stuff to that. Uh, it's, it feels out of place. Then it feels out of place in the movie, but I mean, that's, I guess what they were doing in the sixties. No, no. Songs. Yeah.
1: It, it helps it grounded it in a time and place. I always think about yeah. like, uh, radio theater and they'd have the guy who would like clack coconuts and and make weird whistling sounds and would have like just random household items that make important noises that they would do into a mic and that was like how effects were done and it's like yeah you need it's it's a it's a
0: smart thing to include that to ground this movie when it is so Um, this was in my stray thoughts but i'll just ask you now uh better performance adam driver and marriage story or inside (laughs) lwellyn davis (laughs) Different performance,
1: different performance. You know drop. what? It's
0: that is true. That is, you were accurate. It is a different performance. Let me just
1: say, I don't think um, he got Marriage Storage, Mary, Marriage Story because of this. Uh, this film, you don't,
0: you don't think Noah Baumbach didn't watch this? No, it wasn't this one that he was like, that's so. it. I, I want think, that guy. I don't think he saw
1: the Hidden Gem.
0: That was <laughs> Adam Driver. It inside the and Davis. Yeah. Uh, any other actors, or we'll move on. No, I'm good. Everyone else is good. There's a lot of little bit parts, but I think we covered all the big people. Yeah, uh, and that, well, we've actually, already kind of real quick. Yeah, that, yeah.
1: It, that is something the Coen Brothers are really good at: is the ensemble, like one line cast. They always yeah. seem to find people who are perfect for those minor reads. So, I out. don't
0: have his name, and I should probably look it up if I'm going to talk about him. So let me do that real quick. But the uh, the guy that owns the Gaslight Theater, oh uh, God, what a sleaze. is like perfect <laughs> as like an intensely despicable person that but you don't really see why for a little while and but you know yeah, i mean it know. just feels like a seedy yeah, a know. seedy odor max casella is the guy uh yeah he does a great job too again you're right direction they direct them well um they're always good at that stuff uh my next real quick because it, it's it's related i just want to note real quick why this movie works it actually can be legitimately funny yeah i know we've been saying so so many times that's a very depressing movie uh but, again, that, that quote about how, like, comedy can be tragedy zoomed out, they lean into that, and it works in this movie. Yeah. Uh, a couple highlights I have. He likes funerals. I don't know what to tell you <laughs> when they're having the back and forth about his, his executive that just likes to go to funerals. and he's, so he's like, he's a family funeral. It's his – what is it? It's like his, his daughter's future husband's mother. and Yeah, yeah. Well, it says, I don't know if that qualifies as family. Um. <laughs> Troy waking up Llewellyn by eating his cereal, by eating the cereal, and Llewellyn just staring at him for like f- a 15 second cut is just yeah. incredible. Yeah. Hey, hey, are you Hugh Davis's kid? Every time he gets asked that, and he gets madder every time. Um, and then, like, and we already said Adam Driver, but I just wrote down Adam Driver, everything yeah. he does yeah. in the movie. Uh, it's not to be clear because I've got in trouble for this before with Cohen's. Uh, it's not like laugh out loud funny. I, I forgot what the movie it was, but there was a movie I told someone was quote unquote pretty funny and they watched it and said it wasn't funny at all. <laughs> and so I, I, I feel the need to clarify it's, it's a black comedy. So yeah, there's, yeah it's funny, but it's not like you're watching it and like laughing. I think I only laughed at the, at probably the serial thing and the funeral conversation. Um, but it's got, a little mo- it's got moments like that. It's got It's got a lot of good stuff to it. Yeah. It's just a dry hammer is kind of
1: what yeah. they do. And it's never going to make you laugh out loud. But my goodness, do I chuckle a thousand times yeah. in this movie. Um, it's great. Every time uh, Llewellyn Davis judge- yeah. judges somebody else, I'm just like <laughs> right there with him. I'm like, yeah, this does suck. And I feel you, man. And I
0: just laugh. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. hundred percent. Um I have more stuff, but I've been, I've been going through my points for a while. What do you got? Um, I kind of want to – this is like a big point. I think the tragedy
1: of Llewellyn Davis as a character is super interesting. I, I actually really like the complexity of this character because – and this kind of mingles with the comedic point on some level. Like, on one hand, Llewellyn Davis is just a screw-up. Like, the opening scene – is one of the funniest most relatable scenes i've seen in a movie and it's also just great character development because you immediately get who he is he is just an utter f up like from him getting beat up to letting the cat out to the door locking behind him to him having to carry the cat around all day before losing it and then lying about it and then bringing back the wrong cat like that stuff (laughs) is funny but it's also yeah. just like so deeply relatable and it's also such good character development because you're just like, I know this person. I know them. They are never yeah. going to do anything right. Um, I, I actually really, really, really laughed at two parts of that Kennedy scene. And these are like more <laughs> nuanced ways of capturing how much of an he is. Which is, like, I felt the pain in the small moment when Jim invites him to, like, this paid recording gig, which is a generous thing for him to do. And then he craps on the song, and he's like, who wrote this? And Jim's like, I did. And I just, like, Ooh, cringe. That's so rough. Yeah. it's so relatable. Or, like, when Mike's parents are like, that Kennedy song is going to be a hit. Big royalties. And he turned those <laughs> down. You're just like, you are a screw-up, man. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's like on one hand, and if you have thoughts on that, on the other hand, he's truly awful at the same time. Yeah. And I'll wait to talk about that. Um, but I don't know. Just that character as like a tragic character in a lot of ways. Um I mean it's like Sisyphus, you know, where he's just constantly pushing the boulder up and it's never moving. Sorry, go on. Go
0: on. No, no, I was just gonna say it's a true I I completely agree. It's a true character study, you know, and and you're right. I think he's one of the most fascinating characters. I can think of. I actually do talk about him quite a lot in my essay, so I'll probably hold off on on some of the stuff, but I just wanna note that it, it's such a gray blend of circumstantial problems and self-created problems. Yeah, yeah. Which is again a true tragic character is that is that the ultimately the biggest flaw is him. Yeah. Ultimately he creates most of his problems. The 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 royalties thing is the best example because he's so strapped for cash that he says $200 now I need that $200 of course there's a little humor in that because he doesn't remember he needs it for the abortion but when he goes to the doctor he finds that it already been paid for because the last one didn't take so stuff like that like there's all these things where it's like he's just always on the losing end of every deal but despite that you still really feel for him when things don't work out I think I, I'm, I'm sort of folding one of my points into this, but I just wanted to take a second to talk about when he plays for Bud Grossman. Yeah. And the yeah. line that the thing, so he, he delivers this amazing song and Grossman considers for a second and then says, I don't see a lot of money here. Ugh. And I actually think that's the most gutting line in the whole movie because yeah. it, it's the it's the bow on top of all of his struggles is that, you know, he's he's going through this hellish week that you kind of get the impression is probably what most of his weeks are like. And he's, again, he's part of it to a huge (laughs) degree. He's pushing people away. He's making poor decisions. But as much as he's a part of it, it's also things that are being done to him. And he has this lifeline, which is if only I could make it as a musician, if only I could get that one chance to play in front of a lot of people or to play in the right context or to the right person, and suddenly everything would change... And he goes through all this work and he gets to this point, and all that he's told is, "I just don't think he got it yeah I don't think I don't think he got it and it's just it's just it's a perfect tragedy it is so deeply existentially like depressing and and that's what we mean I think when we keep saying this movie is depressing is that it's it's a portrait of someone who will always come out on like I said on the losing side, yeah. Yeah. And it forces you and I think that's great. And this is what we'll get into with my essay later is it forces you to ask questions about what success even is. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's effective in that sense. And like and I but all that to say, I agree with you. I think the character is just fascinating and you don't. And I'll also say you don't see that character in a lot of movies. And I would even go so far as to say it's what's missing from most uh, biopics. Now, to be fair, a biopic is generally about a real character and real characters that we want to make a movie about generally end up successful. So obviously they will have an arc that paints the end of it as like, you know, as them succeeding and, and having like this redemption, which is actually the thing I hate most in biopics is that, uh, which, which, what, oh man, it's on the tip of my tongue. Walk hard does a great job of portraying this thing. Because I love the moment where a character (laughs) even says The wrong son died. I love we gotta do Walk Hard too, man. That's a great movie. I I Um, yell
1: that at people at least four times a week. The wrong son died.
0: (laughs) And he never even paid for drugs. Not once. (laughs) I just love there's that that scene though, I mean, that I just referenced, (sighs) he even at the end of it says, Well, it looks like you're entering into a new phase of your career or something like that. Yeah. yeah because yeah. it's all in, and, and the reason why that movie is, is, I would even say almost a perfect movie is because it so understands the genre that it's making fun of because there's such clear beats in music biopics. Yeah. yeah and yeah. all that is to say this movie eschews every one of those beats. Yeah. It, it does. It's literally the opposite at every quarter. Um, and it's just perfect for that. And it, it, it like I said it just makes this character so much more fascinating than the frankly like fake version of Johnny Cash or or Ray or whoever not I, I mean those are those movies have merits to them I, I don't want to just completely disregard them but I just find something like this so much more intriguing absolutely yeah you know as a character
1: you know I you don't see a character like this in film unless the movie is trying to make you not empathetic towards them and this movie is, it wants you to empathize that he is like you said, on one hand down on his luck. And on the other hand, he's a narcissist and, and it is, it's trying to hold a mirror to you and being like, you're also, you know, a narcissist to some degree. Everyone is. Um, But like that narcissism, the fact that it makes me so empathetic with this character, that's so narcissistic, sometimes in blunt ways, whether it's asking Jim for money to pay for the abortion of the baby that Luanne has had with Jim's wife, which is just like when you say that out loud, "Good
0: God!" It's right? Despicable. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful.
1: But then it, it, sometimes it's like funny ways where he's listening to the army musician and he's judging him, and then the army musician says he's going to invite up someone great and lovely, and Jim and and Llewellyn's first <laughs> words are, "I don't have my guitar," because he assumes he's being invited. Like there, there's just so much so much humanity in that to me where it's like i have definitely done that before where i'm just like well surely this person's going to shout me out <laughs> and then, like you look back on it and you're like why did you think that other than the fact that you're narcissistic in some really yeah. profound ways um and and then obviously like the fact that he judges everyone you know especially people who help him especially people who like i love the crowd scene when you know jim and jan are playing and people like it and they're engaged and he just is doing because he He just hates hates it he just hates it and you on one hand you're like you're such a a dick because you just don't want anyone else to be happy if you're not but on the other hand you're like empathetic because you're like i think he's reckoning with the fact that he just doesn't get it anymore he doesn't get the music scene that he has like you said he has put all of his stock into and that judgmentalism is coming out of, like, he's reckoning with the fact that this isn't his home anymore. And there's something yeah. so relatable about that um, and the tragedy of that character. I also kept thinking, this is a side comment, I wrote down, Llewellyn is just a bad penny. Um, <laughs> and and then below it, the line, everything you touch turns to crap, like King Minus's idiot brother, <laughs> which is one of the funniest lines <laughs> I've ever seen. Yeah. But he's like a piece of gum that gets stuck to people's shoe and... Yeah, Ugh. yeah, it's just heartbreaking. Um, I but, like
0: yeah. uh, just in terms of of the struggle he has to go through when he asks um, Troy Al, Al Cody, the Adam Driver character, "Hey, do you have a place? Yeah, how is it? Uh, it it's it's a piece of trash. Yeah. Do you have a couch? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all that matters. To him. He just it's, needs
1: a place. He just needs a place and." Oh man. Yeah. But before we move off, let me make one comment and I'm going to shut up, um, to the second point you said, which is that the subversion of the genre. Um, I think I wish more people would make movies about the people who like almost made it right. I think that's what you were bringing up earlier where we always see the films about the hero completing the hero journey when 99.999% of people in any industry Make it small time, have minor successes, or never make it in even a minor success at all. Right. And the fact that this movie is actually like really gutsy and being like, we're just going to tell you a story that ends with this guy getting the gig that in a music biopic would be the one that launched his career. You know, the times is at the gaslight. And then someone who plays his style of music better than he does shows up and he never makes it. Right. Yeah. I think, I think there's something so profound. And you, I know you said you're going to probably crap on the Bob Dylan aspect, (laughs) but I do really like, I do really like the ending of this movie and I do think it elevates it because the entire end of this movie is like, I mean, he sees the journey home movie poster. It's like a fantastical adventure and it's setting up that this is like the culmination of his hero's journey with this playing of this heartfelt song fairly well, right? where you know he's like gut-wrenchingly honestly working through his trauma and that's going to be the thing that elevates him and the grief pours out and people are going to find him and he's going to make it and then the movie's like dude this isn't a hero's journey like he's going to yeah. end up bleeding lying in a gutter and the last line of the film is going to be goodbye in french au revoir right and that's going to fade the
0: Actually body. au revoir even though it is stand in for goodbye it means I'll see you again which is really cool for the cyclical thing Yeah that, uh, 100% well yeah. But, but I love but no, it. I, I, it's so subversive. I, yeah, I for the record, like we can do the Bob Dylan thing now because like I, I might even be wrong because I didn't have any point of why I didn't like it. Other than that, it felt gimmicky and it also felt like it took them took focus away from Llewellyn. I can accept the reading you've presented as a better version of it. When I first saw the movie and even on the rewatch, I thought it was just them being kind of cute. And I was kind of like, I don't think you need it there i can yeah. accept though that reading so yeah, i i was probably wrong i like that a little bit more well, i still I, love it for another reason that we'll get to later which is that i don't think technically it's it's executed very well yeah yeah um but that's just me i, I don't know but uh, I, I can accept that Uh, But real quick, actually, on – this is a very small what makes the movie work, but we've referenced it a couple times, and and I just referenced it again, so I just want to say real quick, the movie's structure is really odd. Yeah. But I think really cool. I I think the best part about the structure – there's parts I don't like, and and I've I've talked a lot about pacing over the past 15 episodes because it really matters to me. This is an example of a movie that I don't know if it's very well paced. I actually think it gets – it's only an hour 45. It feels like four hours. Yeah. I'm not yeah. kidding. Like, especially when he, I think the whole reason I can't rewatch the movie is because when he goes to Chicago, it's, it's so like a 20 long. minute scene that oh feels like gosh. like eternity. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it is, on the one hand, I think it's meant to, it's meant to feel like you're just really in the gutters. You're just really having to, because it's such a struggle for him to get there. But it just makes it where I don't want to watch it. Yeah. Um, that's a little beyond the point, though. What I was gonna say is I love the way that the movie has this cyclical thing, which we've referenced a couple times. So the movie starts actually with the performance that comes chronologically at the end, and the way that they set it up, it you don't realize. I think I didn't. I don't know about you. When I first <laughs> watched the movie, I didn't realize it until the <coughs> end that we were gonna end with the per- performance that the movie started with. Yeah, that the yeah. way that it transitions from that first performance or sorry from the performance at the beginning of the movie to him waking up they really portray it as though that is one after the other and not Absolutely. that we've gone back Absolutely. like a week and and <clears> there's <throat> even like these little details that come up where it's, it's like you get the impression that we're just watching the same things are happening over and over again that we're watching that he seems to be going through similar things to what he goes through all the time yeah and then of course you have little details i, I already said it but just say it again the last line of the movie au revoir french for goodbye but what it literally translates to is i will see you again and so again there's something kind of cool in that i geek out and stuff like that like, yeah it's from that cyclical kind of thing i don't know if you have comments on that other than i, I mean it's just cool Well, my my entire
1: monologue is about this, so I'm going to hold most of my comments, but I do think it's a really cool directorial choice or writing choice that what they're trying to do is, again, it subverts the genre. You know, even in biopics that don't do cradle to grave, the point is they're going to drop you into a moment in this character's life that was informative about the great things that they inevitably do, right? Or a transformational moment. And this movie is like, we're going to drop you into a slice of life. And what you are going to get at the end is that you could have dropped into any slice of life from Llewellyn's life. And it would have been exactly the same movie. And I think that is brilliant and it is so subversive and it's just great. So I'll save the rest for later, but yes, I, I love
0: the cyclical nature of this film. Um, the only other thing I have for why this works, uh, the production design is really, really astounding um they just recreate 1961 new york and it looks great great. and there's all these little details in the background i do have some strong comments about some of the cgi in the movie which we'll get to (laughs) later uh but beyond besides that I, i think the production is great and then finally we we kind of already said it but i just wanted to make another note about it the music in the movie is genuinely incredible uh, the version of I had wings at the or if I had Wings" at the end of the movie actually like became a staple in my library. Yeah. afterwards, like yeah. I, I listened to the, I, I listened to that all the time. Uh, and it's a great example, I think, of the power of music because him singing that um, lands so much harder with the context of his life. because that's what the song's about, right? or that's, that's what he is singing about. Is that, you know, uh, fare thee well. And, and if I had wings like Noah's Dove, I'd fly away from here to the one I love. You, I, I don't know if this is just my reading, but it seems no, yeah. obvious that he's singing towards Mike, towards this person that yep. was so important to him that he'd so desperately needs now that's gone. And that makes that whole last performance just like a punch in the gut. Yeah. It's just, it, it hits so hard. Um, and that's what music is. And that's what I'm going to talk about in my essay a little bit too, but I just want to call out that song and that performance. So uh, anything else you have for why this movie works? Um,
1: yeah. 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 I have two more, I think briefly connected to your last point. I think the three major reveals of this movie are really expertly done. Um, the first that I thought of that we already talked about is Mike's backstory, which we've, you know, gone over enough. The second I noted was, you know, that Llewellyn has a kid. And the entire scene of him driving past Akron and seeing the lights in the distance and like this life he could have had if he wasn't so selfish and whatever. And he chooses to drive past. I mean, it's just like a, another beautiful moment. And that reveal is so expertly written into the film where it's like, of course, Llewellyn would find out as he goes to get a second abortion, that he has a child, right? Um, And then of course he would also choose not to meet him. And then the Bob Dylan ending, which we've already talked about. But um and and again, how like you said in that last point, this should be the performance where he exercises his demons and that choice to do that is the one that redeems him and sends him on his path to stardom. And this film's like, Nope. It's beautiful, <laughs> but it's also lost in time. Like Tears and Rain. Yeah. Um <laughs> But um but yeah, I think the only way Blade point, Runner Llewellyn Davis crossover right? I, I I would watch Oscar Isaac in a Blade Runner movie. T- I bet this is the like, there's no way
0: the Coens would make that. I think Ridley Scott would make that. I would see that movie. Uh, that guy's crazy. Don't make anything. Yeah, the last thing I just want to throw out, and
1: this is a funny one, given the quote you started this podcast with, because I'm starting to think the cat imagery is totally <laughs> nonsensical. But the cat imagery stood out as something that I overthought, and in that overthinking, deeply appreciated it. Uh, you know, my reading of it, which now, again, seems like it's wrong, Um, is that the cat is like the absolute least amount of responsibility and selflessness. And it's like this constant test in the movie of his decency and whether he's going to think about really anything instead of himself. And, you know, I think the final test of that, well, the second to last one is where he's about to leave Goodman in the car and it's like staring at him and he pauses it and he chooses to leave anyway. And I think that's all building to like this choice that's ultimately, I think, if there is a scene of final judgment in the movie in, or a climactic moment of his journey in a negative sense, I think it's when he hits the cat and he like sees the blood on the car. There's a cat limping into the woods. And, you know, I think there is like a Schrodinger's cat thing going on where he doesn't know if it's the same cat or not. And he never will. And he'll never actually know if it dies or not, but he does know that he chooses not to help it. And I think there's like this moment of judgment and condemnation going back to the cyclical thing that he will always be this way as seen in this decision, this one choice and his fate is kind of set and like, no one will know, but he does and he will. And ultimately he pays the price at the end of the film. So I don't know. I don't know if any of that's in the movie, but I got a lot out of that imagery. So yeah,
0: I don't know if it's not in the movie. I, 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 the cat thing is so weird because it does feel like, it feels a little bit like exactly what Co- what Joel Cohen said. And even though I'm sure that was a joke, it does feel a little bit like it's it's tacked on. Um I, I don't even know if tacked on is the right word. It it feels like like it is th- hinting towards something much deeper, but it may or may not be a red herring. Yeah. Um I don't know. I I, I think that reading is is probably the, the most accurate thing you're supposed to pull out of it. And it's not bad. I think it works that uh, certainly I, I think the movie does judge him for how he was or how he neglects um the cat, the multiple cats, as it turns yeah, out. Yeah, sure, sure. Um I, I think that in, in yeah, I, don't know, I I think that works pretty well. And it is I, I would say it is sort of the nadir of his emotional journey is when he hits it on or hits A cow on the way back. And it's it's almost like the the final, because that's after he's been rejected by the by Grossman and everything. It's almost like the final um, knife in the ribs of like you know, especially of like he's doing this to himself. Yeah, that yeah. that's like you know, you are the cause of all of these bad things happening to you, um, and you you will never be able to escape that because you don't acknowledge it and see it and attempt to even change it. So I think there's a lot to mine there, but I also am hesitant for exactly. I what know <laughs> I know that quote yeah. kills me. Um, yeah, because it's so
1: when it's so funny because we we're talking about, you know, the whole soundtrack is folk, except for that scene. And then it's very operaic. Right. There's like an opera yeah. music in the background. And there's a part of me that's like the Coen brothers must think this is like a climax. This is like a a decisive moment. And now I'm just sitting here being like, or they don't. And then nothing is true
0: and the gun brothers just pissed me off but i don't know, um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah I don't know. it's weird cool uh stick around after the break we're gonna hit what holds this movie back and some stray thoughts everybody welcome back like i said we're going to talk a little bit about what maybe holds this movie back how it maybe could have been better and um and then we have some stray thoughts for each other so first what holds it back and and if you would permit me mike i have a i have a small rant i have a small soapbox i want to get on top of do you are you okay with that take it away just john Give me a couple minutes just to go give tell the people The Coens are so bad at CGI, it (laughs) makes me question their entire ability as technical filmmakers. It's crazy. And it's weird because their contemporaries, people like Paul Thomas Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, David Fincher, don't have the same problems. And I don't get it. It's either because those other people mostly use practical effects or they incorporate CGI better. I I don't know why. But I notice in so many of their movies... There's stuff, and sometimes it's really obvious. I think this is one of the worst things about True Grit. There's scenes in True Grit that I swear to God look like I made it in Windows Movie Maker in 2004. (laughs) Um, But there's stuff here, too. Like, I I think the real offender is when he's driving to and back from Chicago. The street signs and the road and other cars and stuff look seriously fake and just really bad the animal that he hits when you see it limping off again looks like a video game from the ps2 era it just doesn't look good and i don't know why they're so bad at it and why they haven't gotten better and why they still use it because none of that stuff even has to be cgi i don't get it it always makes me mad uh that's it that was was my soapbox it wasn't as long as i thought but i don't know if you have thoughts on that that was the first thing i wrote down i'm very passionate about it and again it goes all the way back to true grit which everyone loved I was just like, among other problems, that movie has a lot of problems, but among other things, all of the digital effects look seriously terrible. Really yeah, bad. I agree. I don't know
1: what it is. I mean, I, I always think of, oh, what's the movie with Brad Pitt where he plays the idiot Jim Burn guy? After Reading? Yep, Burn After Reading when he gets shot in the face. Like, their blood yeah. effect is so bad sometimes. it's There's some scenes in No Country where it's the same thing where someone gets shot and you're like, like, huh. <laughs> how have you not figured out how to do like a digitally rendered like bullet wound yet? I
0: yeah I don't know. Doesn't it's so weird to me? I don't get it. Yeah, it's Burn strange. after reading also one of their I would say low points, but has has a couple moments. I love Red Pit in that movie. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah, they're just so bad at it. I don't get it. What did it uh, work? I only have three. Burn after I only reading. have three things under. Yeah. <laughs> I only have three true. things on what holds it back. So I'm just gonna power through if you're okay with yeah, that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I get, I I already referenced this, so I'm just going to kind of reiterate it. I get that part of the point is that the movie is, has a certain plotlessness to it, but that ride to Chicago is real rough in terms of pacing. And we're rewarded with one of the best, if not the best scene in the movie, which is the Bud Grossman scene, but it's still, it's just a drag. It's just rough to rewatch that scene. Um, and actually, the other thing I had was the Bob Dylan thing, which we already kind of litigated. So those are the main things. All of them were technical, I realize. Um, which, I mean, is true. I, I don't think there's that much wrong with this movie. But that was the. those were the main things I had. Uh, what do you got?
1: Yeah, this is a weird one where we've kind of litigated a lot of this stuff already, which means we're bad at our jobs. Um, yep. You know, I, I definitely agree with the, the Goodman stretch of the movie I get why it's in the movie, but I the word drag is what I put in all caps. I'm like, it yeah. drags. And on top of that, it's not a pleasant viewing experience. Like, he's such an unpleasant character. It's not funny. It's just unpleasant. And I had to
0: really stop myself on the rewatch from just skipping it. Yeah. that like I, I, if I hadn't been, if I hadn't been doing this podcast, I probably would have never watched that whole section ever again in my life. Cause every time I watch it, I'm just going to skip that part. Yeah. If I ever watch the movie again, cause it's just, uh, it's just so, yeah, just so slow. It's so boring. It's just, it's rough. Yeah. Well, and
1: I, and I think that's, that goes to my bigger, what didn't work. And that is this movie is the definition of a movie that is near perfect thematically. Um, You know, like I said, between the cat, the hero's journey, all this stuff, all these biopic subversions. I mean, it's so good in terms of theme and it's so thought provoking and it's so deep and layered and and the structure is fascinating to talk about. And at the same time, I don't think I will ever rewatch this movie again. I don't think I enjoy watching it. I don't think I want to rewatch it. Uh, even though we talked about the empathy and the narcissistic blend, uh, all these characters suck and they're not enjoyable yeah. to be around. Except for Justin Timberlake, who just gets scrapped for on for Justin the Timberlake. whole Timberlake
0: movie. <laughs> like he just gets just, like he's just a joy to yeah, just be on screen. You know what? That's why they didn't have him in more of the movie. It would have lifted it too much. Yeah, exactly. And like he would have been like, oh, it wasn't that bad of a movie. We well, felt pretty
1: happy. And I know it's judgmental, but like their brokenness is is wholly Unenjoyable. It's it's a lack of responsibility for self. It's a it's just selfishness, a self-centeredness taken to its an extreme. And it's just so hard to sit with characters like that for an hour and forty five minutes. I mean, yeah, it's just tough. And on top of the brutal beating that he receives over the movie, I, I just don't know how many times I'm gonna rewatch this in my life. Which is funny because again, uh, thematically, I enjoy it as much as any movie we've talked about. Um, but again. Depth does not equal rewatchability. And I think this is a not the most rewatchable movie on top of the pace issue that we talked about. So sure. Um, I guess is, are the rest of them mine? Uh, let's yeah. see. Yeah. already litigated this. The Coen brothers worldview just doesn't appeal to me at all, especially as I get older. Yeah. I mean, I think the older I get, the less time and patience I have for this, you know, nihilism, yada, 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 um, I won't. I won't spend too much time on that. Uh, I wrote. Do you like movies that are entirely about people looking back on their lives and only
0: feeling regret? <laughs> uh, is that? Are you really posed to be the question? Uh, yeah. <laughs> then <laughs> sure. I'd say. I mean, you know, the other contender, uh, the the other heavyweight contender has got to be. Jeez, oh, what's it called? My mind's going blank. Uh, the The Irishman. Yeah. Be the other. Yeah, yeah. It's a way uh, way more beautiful both movie. Both of which are incredibly <laughs> effective movies. Uh, I, I I would say Luan Davis is probably slightly better than The Irishman. Both of them have terrible the last... CGI choices. Not <laughs> another one. Scorsese can't keep it together either. Scorsese I forgive cuz he's an old guy. This is all new to him. Like he you know it's like whatever. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's that his contempt their contemporaries seem to get it. Um the answer is I don't like watching those movies, but they can be very effective. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I would say. Is that It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't like, uh, you know. I mean, even earlier I, I said something about my favorite Coen Brothers movie is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I don't think that's their best movie. I think that's either this or No Country. But neither of those are very watchable. And sure. I don't enjoy movies that aren't very watchable. Sure, so. sure. Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: I'm going to stick on Justin Timberlake one more time. And yeah. I hate saying this because I do think he's legitimately good in this. I think he's legitimately good. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Well, I, what are you think, gonna say? I think he's good in like the social network, but I have never seen Justin Timberlake in a movie where I have not asked myself out loud what is Justin Timberlake <gasps> doing in this movie. <gasps> like, How dare you? He's so distracting. How dare he you? is so distracting to me. <laughs> like, why are you in this? Or like wh- why are you acting? And it, that's so, it's so personal because obviously he does a good job. It's not like a discrediting of his work. I just, it is so obviously Justin Timberlake in a movie every single time. And it's not I fair. I will
0: accept that for this movie. <laughs> uh, if only because it also kind of goes against, he, he genuinely does cut against the tone of every other person in the whole movie. Um, I think it's that that's a bonker sentence about, social network oh no I think he's great he's, that, he's, that's an incredible performance he's yeah.
1: also kind of playing himself in a twisted way in that movie because fincher's really good at that sort of thing yeah. like what if justin timberlake did cocaine for like eight years <laughs> uh, but
0: yeah he no, became a tech executive yeah
1: i just he never he never fades into a role i'm always like justin timberlake said this that's all i'm trying to say he's in yeah, yeah sure it's not a huge distraction but it doesn't necessarily always work um for me And then the last one is also personal, which is just that this is so clearly a New York story. And I have very little experience with New York. So I imagine this film is a lot
0: more impactful for people who care about New York City. And I don't. Well, (laughs) you say that. Uh, This was another one. We're we're burning through my stray thoughts, man. This was another one of my stray thoughts. So I'll just go ahead and say now I I wrote for what it's worth. I, I did a little bit of research on this movie. Uh, for what's worth, a lot of surviving folk artists and people with familiar with the scene in the '60s uh, strongly dislike this movie, saying oh, that it totally misrepresents what was actually. <laughs> yeah, saying that it, it, <laughs> and kind of the 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 summary from what I the the what's the word the paraphrase of their comments is it totally re- misrepresents what was actually a very warm, welcoming, and vibrant art scene. So, for what it's worth, that doesn't go. mean if you think about it. I do remember when I read that though, I was like, that doesn't. This movie doesn't actually talk about that. I, I mean, this movie, this could be a warm, welcoming, vibrant art scene because we're just seeing this one guy, right? Yeah. We're not really seeing the scene, but I also see where they're coming from, where they were like, this was not what it was actually like, and for most people, in in the folk scene in the '60s, I don't know. For what it's worth. Fair uh, enough. Anything else for Roy Holds Movie back? Nope, that's all I got. Well, we've already gone through half of them that I've, I've had to take <laughs> out, but here's let's do stray thoughts. As usual, we'll just trade back and forth. Um, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, the details of the movie are really incredible, and especially, I just want to this is only this really could have gone in what makes the movie why it works, but I just want to state that like there's small things in, in the performances that are really incredible. I love when Jean and Llewellyn are watching the performance in the gaslight mm. after Jean has told him that she's pregnant, and they both almost look at each other several times, but never quite actually look yeah, at each other. Yeah, yeah, and stuff like that is again it just communicates so much without actually communicating. I just think that's great. Uh, go ahead. Uh, question for you, John did you have a yeah. folk, did you have
1: a folk music phase? Absolutely.
0: In in a sense, I've never quite left it. I I think I I, I never I will say I I was never quite on the revival in the way that everyone was. I I, I never got the Mumford and Sons phase. Uh, Actually, OG hater from way back. So I got (laughs) that going for me. Um, It's worth noting. We haven't even mentioned it, but they actually helped quite a lot with this movie as well. Uh, So that's good. Good on them for that. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, the reason I say I'm still there is I've, I've uh, still, like, Nick Drake is one of my all-time favorite musicians ever. Slightly late for, like, the 60s scene. He was more 70s British, but uh, still incredible. I listen to Pink Moon probably once a week. Uh, and then also, like, Flea Foxes. I, I've, I've been completely on board with them for a while. Um, I don't know if there, there's, just like every genre of music, there are snobs within folk music who would be perfectly willing to say that neither Nick Drake nor fleet Foxes qualify qualifies folk music. Uh, so whatever, but, but I mean, certainly I, there was a while where that was all that I wanted to play was stuff yeah. like this. There's um, also, I
1: think there are snobs in the genre who say they don't like Mumford and Sons too.
0: Yeah. I've never, I've never heard of that, but, uh, yeah. you know, if, if, if there's people around who do that, that's just, that's just sad, you know, it's just like, good get a life or something find something else to uh, to stake your uh you know enjoyment of things on i, I prefer you know mike i prefer liking things i i, I don't <laughs> connect with people on, on disliking things i've always said it i've always been on the level about that i'm not gonna bash anything oh jeez. um i refuse to believe that the guy Llewellyn is hitchhiking with actually slept through <laughs> the abrupt stop when they hit the cat like like i've been i've had times where i was like that asleep but usually i was sick or in a hospital uh or under some sort of medication and from what we see he's just tired and falls asleep well so i i I don't buy that at all
1: he does say when he agrees to let him drive that he's been awake for like 24 hours so
0: does he say that yeah yeah that's why he's like i really need to sleep
1: because i've been driving straight for like two days or something i, don't remember I guess
0: i thought that was hyperbole but yeah i, I don't know I, I don't get wrong. anyways
1: i also think that it's a symbolic scene where it's again no one's ever going to know that he did it but he will know right yeah um, even the guy That's in the true. car sleeps through it but he still is being judged because yeah anyway i yeah. agree also like serial killers and i wouldn't sleep while hitchhiking with someone i didn't know anyway
0: I just assume it was a different time, but I i, I, be, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. but <laughs> I just wouldn't. I'm just saying. I wouldn't, personally. But.
1: <laughs> um, sticking on the music theme, I feel like Justin Timberlake's character, I think whenever I'm around you and we talk about music, you're like, what you think about this <laughs> band? And I'm like, they're wonderful. And you're like, really? And
0: then I just feel judged. <laughs> it's just like really crappy experience. I, I've never done that, I don't think. <laughs> Can you, can you pull up a single time when I've said anything negative about a band ever? Can, so, like, you agree, though, that I am very
1: much Justin Timberlake, where you're just like, what do you think? And I'm like, it's wonderful. And it's just like, no matter – I have no concept of good music. We've talked about
0: this well, a lot what as makes friends. It funny, what makes <laughs> it funny is that you so clearly see that, like, it, it's all about whatever you've invested in, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, a great example. I have a, a friend of mine here in California named Jesse – uh he's a great guy, really into cars and, and not so much like like music and stuff or movies, right? <laughs> so like he can watch movies and just be like, Yeah, that was great. And I was like, Oh, that was a terrible movie. I don't know what you're talking about. But it's funny to me that the same thing can happen in reverse, where I'm like, Oh, that's a great car. He's like, that's like the worst car in history. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what's wrong with it? And he'll go through this laundry list and I'm like, I don't know, it seems fine to me. <laughs> so it's just so so in a sense, like I I, I don't I think we're, I think essentially everyone is probably snobby about one thing, but, or at least one thing I should say. And it's just about whatever that thing is, right? Where it's yeah. like, you know, my mom doesn't care about movies. We walked out of, um, um, what was the last Star Wars movie called? Okay. Rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> and she and my sister. That was a great movie. I was like, that was seriously one of the worst things I've ever seen in movie theater. But then my mom loves books in a way that I, I genuinely never will. Or she just reads a million books and has strong opinions on all of them. And it's incredible. And I'm like, you know, so so I think everyone's like that on something. All of that to say, it's funny to me because otherwise you and I, like TV shows, movies, I think we we have the same level of passion. So it's always been funny to me that you don't have that for music and all of your touchstones are a little bit old. and very like punk music in the... 2000s uh so it's just funny to be. it's not even negative <laughs> I, I just i've always appreciated that talking to you that's fantastic Anyways, just the best. um my next point the Coens are really into the odyssey huh yeah they are keep keeps coming up uh oh brother where art thou is the odyssey apparently this movie some people have broken down that the structure is kind of like the odyssey i guess whatever i don't care um the cat is named ulysses too which obviously is the is the other name you could uh, for, for Odysseus? So cool, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. I, I, despite being an English major and actually taking a couple classics classes, I've never gotten the Odyssey in the way other people have. Um, and even I, I can even add to that. I love Joseph Campbell and I love the Hero of a Thousand Faces, and it's and all of that. I've never quite gotten the Odyssey. I've never like had that moment where it's like this is the greatest thing all stories come from this. It's so incredible. I'm just like, oh no, it's okay. Super, uh, uh, I don't know. Man, my buddy Al,
1: who teaches Latin, is going to be pissed. (laughs) He's going (laughs) to hear this.
0: Is he just going to turn off the episodes? Yeah,
1: or he has like some take that the Odyssey's overrated. I don't know what his thoughts on this are, but he will have a strong, he'll have a strong reaction one way or the other.
0: I, I I just want to know. I'm not saying it's overrated. I'm just saying I'm not exactly like I I'm I'm just not that invested in it. I just don't. I, I just personally I'm like okay. I mean yeah, you, you don't you don't have to convince me
1: because I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou is the most overrated movie ever because I don't really <gasps> care about the Odyssey. So I'm like with you. Like we can we can we can shake well, hands.
0: But I like Oh Brother Where Art Thou. <laughs> That's I think fine. it exists perfectly well. Outside of the, I mean, I, I guess the thing, the point you're making, which is true, is that I think people consider it significantly higher art than it even wants to be. Yeah. Possibly because it is a retelling of the Odyssey, which sort of like immediately gives something this aura. Yeah. I could agree with that. Yeah. Uh, well, so you got anything else? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah does, does the Kennedy song slap, John? Yeah. Uh, as the kids say, uh, yes. Yes it is it it is fantastic okay okay do you have more if i ever get married i want that to be my uh the the song that we dance to you
1: just really want to rock out to adam driver whoa
0: (laughs) whoa yeah i want that is it me now are you done oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i had one more uh I, i didn't realize i had one more uh, this is actually, again, just a little research on the movie. Apparently, the cats were a nightmare on the set. I, I um, can see that. On the advice of a friend, they put out a call for an orange tabby cat because it's one of the most common types of cats that there is. Um, but the, the cats were so bad. They had six or seven for different scenes. And like they, they had found out that like like as soon as they wrote the cat in, they had people tell them, man, you really shouldn't do that much with cats because you cannot train cats. Like, it's just a rule of nature that, like, compared to dogs, dogs want to do stuff for you. Cats don't. Yeah. And so they were, like, what they had to do was find cats that, like, had a disposition to doing what they wanted it to do in a particular scene. (laughs) And, like, that's what... So, like, the scene where it runs out the window, they just had to find a cat that, like, liked to run out windows. (laughs) And, like, that's the cat that they use in that scene um oh, apparently it negatively that's why they that's why they did
1: the cgi one who gets hit by a car because then the cats like being I mean, hit by cars <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> they tried <That's> probably true <laughs> apparently they uh it negatively influenced their personal like of cats we're all they uh, all of the people involved in the movie are like we kind of all hate cats now i just well, think that's funny
1: welcome to the club
0: uh, that's it so you can just you can just roll now uh, okay the rest of yours Cat related, how upset
1: were you when he hits the cat with the car and leaves?
0: Uh extremely. Yeah. I'm a as as Mike knows, uh and I think has come up on the show before, but I'm a huge cat person. Um actually it's funny, that's not even obviously that's that's bad. I think the more emotionally gutting one is when he leaves it. When oh, yeah. it's looking up at him, uh and he's looking at it and just like deciding that's that's brutal. Yeah. That's rough.
1: He's not a good person, John.
0: Um, he's not anyway. that's when I that's why I decided I'm not there for Luella and everything yeah. else I could forgive but cat <laughs> no way
1: it is really funny that the moment of judgment is cat related and not like the hey I got my buddy's wife knocked up and paid for his abortion whatever anyway yeah um so this is just two pieces of well one piece of trivia and and then one thought you know the Gaslight Cafe is the same uh little venue that's in Marvelous Miss Basil where she gets her break at. It's a great show. Highly recommend. Um, The thought about it is that going to cafes late at night to drink coffee and hear music instead of bars is like the most alien thing in the world to me. That is so (laughs) bizarre. Like, I don't know. It's weird. Um, That one
0: didn't really hold on in in the same way. Like there's a lot of stuff that was introduced in the sixties that we still do today, obviously. But uh, yeah, as a cafe, I mean, it's a cafe slash bar. There's clearly people drinking alcohol. Um, I'm not sure there are, Oh no, no he, gets he, gets he, gets, yeah, right, he gets drunk. He gets drunk. Yeah. He gets drunk. But I mean, it does seem like most people are not like drinking or, or just, it, that's not the focus. It's clearly more of a cafe. Yeah.
1: Um, what I think, so yeah, I, I think I'm confusing a marvelous basal basil. Cause that's said in the fifties and there is no alcohol in the venue. Right. In that right. Show, I think so. that's true. Yeah. Um, Got a series of John Goodman-related questions. We can knock these out. Uh does Go. John, Yeah, let's does, do it. This is related to a previous conversation. Does John Goodman act in movies, or is he just evil?
0: <laughs> I, I believe he's acting. Okay. okay. I do not believe okay. that is that is him. I mean, I, uh, having said that, if I won, like, like if I was in um, some lottery of some kind, and I won like a lunch with John Goodman, I would seriously consider – whether or not I would want to go. It's <laughs> just bail. Like, I'd hesitate. Yeah, I'd be like, hmm, this could go real bad. Uh, I'd go for it, though. Have you
1: ever been in a long car ride with a person like John Goodman who just tells endless stories about themselves that are offensive, boring, uninteresting, egotistical, or just super annoying? Follow up,
0: if you can't think of anyone, it's probably you. <laughs> um, I don't... Uh, I mean, I actually can't think of people. I don't want to say their names, though, because we both know some of them. Um, so I no, don't I, I've certainly been on agonizing car rides. Uh, yeah, that, that's all I'll say. We'll I just, can't, I can't weigh in any further.
1: We'll just go with it to you. Um, okay, is there, is, is there anything worse than someone judging another person for which bridge they jumped off of to commit suicide?
0: No, that, that is, <laughs> I mean, the only thing I can think of that's worse than that is like leaving a cat, uh, <laughs> that you, that you took. Consider this, too, with the cat. I, I, I'm i sorry to harp on this, but consider that he also removed that cat from its environment and left it in the middle of a wilderness. That cat is a city cat. With a bum that leg. He, from, a, from a certain perspective, he, all he did by, like, like he, he would have been better just leaving it on the street in New York, right? Yeah. And actually, in hindsight, I'm not sure why he even took it with him once he knew it wasn't the Gorfine's cat. Because right. he wants to do good, but he can't
1: because he's a monster. I um, actually didn't have this, but it just occurred to me related to our conversation about Alien. Did that cat just poop and pee in the car the entire way to Chicago?
0: I assume that when they stopped for gas. You think the cat just didn't hung it out? run away? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure at all. Yeah. That, wow. I'd Ugh. never even remotely thought about that. Yeah. Whew. That's a weird idea. Uh, last John Goodman
1: question. When the cops arrest the driver and just leave him and John Goodman on the side of the road, what would you do in that situation? Who who am I?
0: Are you uh, saying as well? yeah Yeah. Uh, I really hate to admit this. You'd leave? Literally exactly what he did, <laughs> except I would have taken the cat. Okay. Well, you're better off. You're a better person. That's fine. Yeah. Mar- marginally. I-, I don't think he should leave. The, oh, the, the I mean, overdose guy in the backseat? Yeah. I'm sure that went well. He'll be fine. Um, He'll be fine. He's he's probably playing a show somewhere. That's what this is this is a this is what my inner monologue would be afterwards. Yeah. I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be like, he's probably playing a show. He's okay. You There's are no not
1: the hero of your story. Um, call back. So last question Who is a worse hang? Llewellyn Davis
0: or any of the characters from Zodiac. <laughs> any of the characters from Zodiac. I have to think for a second. It's gotta be Llewellyn Davis because that the cop, Mark Ruffalo, he doesn't seem like a good hang. But he doesn't seem like a bad hang. He's very sure. neutral. <laughs> okay. He I get coffee with him. It'd be a little weird, but it wouldn't be that bad. We talk about how much he hates Dirty Harry. It'd be fun. <laughs> I forgot about that. This is the Zodiac podcast. Welcome to the Zodiac podcast. Every day, all day. Uh, I actually thought of one. I have one more, okay. one more straight thought. Uh, are the Gore finds the nicest couple in human history? Yes. Because the fact that they let him back. And actually the thing I think is, the thing I think is kind of cool is that they're right. When the guy says to him, like, cause he comes in, he's apologetic. And the guy says, it's okay, Mike, talking about Mike stirs up a lot of emotions in people. And I'm like, the wild thing is, he's right, that I don't think Llewellyn actually was. Like, Llewellyn's a terrible person, but that specific instance, I do think, I'm like, you know, it feels like it was more his emotions about Mike that was coming out. Oh yeah. It's insane that they recognize that, though, and yeah. let him back. Yeah. That's crazy. They're just good people. Uh, they're just good people. Um, if a little... Actually, now, I'm kind of curious. I guess last straight thought was just a question. Do you think the movie is portraying them positively or negatively? Or just not that simple. It's neither one. Because I feel like it It, it kind of – I think the movie slash Llewellyn himself kind of takes a, a somewhat a low view of their academia yeah. um, perspective. Uh, but I also don't think it's entirely – I don't, know. I don't know. It's uh, it may be a bigger conversation. Do you just do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think
1: I think the film is constantly showing people who are mishandling grief, and I think sure. they're kind of holding on to this guy that reminds them of their son, and they're not realizing how unhealthy how they treat him is. Like one, they don't realize they're enabling him, but two, they don't realize that like they are treating him like a like a dancing monkey, where it's like, hey, we want to remember Mike or we want a, a folk singing friend that reminds us of Mike that we can show off to our house yeah. guests. And I think that, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm overreading it, but I think that they, there is a, I don't think it's a judgment. I think it's just a depiction of another example of people handling grief poorly. Um, sure. Well, but not, even the not way not that they, not as poorly as Llewellyn. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. And even the way that they introduce him as our folk music friend. Yeah. There's something kind of, in a sense, I get, kind of where he's coming from, which actually my essay gets into a little bit too. So, well,
1: I uh, can cool. see my,
0: I can see my dad introducing people that way. Like, there's <laughs>
1: also like very parental about it, um, yeah. where they think they're complimenting or being like super nice to you, and you're like, you are demeaning the most important thing in my life. <laughs> yeah, like. yeah,
0: I hear you. All right, cool. Uh, stick around, guys. After the break, we're gonna go into Mike and I have each prepared some essays, so uh, stick around for that. everybody. Welcome back. Uh, in this part of the podcast, again, Mike and I have each prepared kind of an essay diving in to some element of the film, often with a sort of spiritual angle. Um, I believe I'm going first, right, Mike? All right, cool. Uh, yeah, so here we go. There's this oft-repeated quote about uh, the Velvet Underground's seminal record, The Velvet Underground and Nico, which is... Only a thousand people bought it, but each and every one of them went out and formed a band. The thing I like about that quote is that it strikes at the heart of a question that means quite a lot to musicians and to artists, and even maybe to anyone who wants to feel as though their life and their struggles will accomplish something or mean something. It strikes at the question, what does success look like? Part of what makes Inside Llewellyn Davis in its own way a brutal watch is its totally unflinching glimpse into a truly unsuccessful artist. Lewin is a failure in many, many ways, first and foremost financially. The whole movie, he bums cigarettes and rides and food and housing. He begs friends for money. He harasses his manager for income. He turns down a potentially lucrative royalty credit for a $200 check that he blows within a couple days. But he's also a failure largely as a human. He systemically drives away the few friends that he has at the beginning of the movie. This isn't the story of a noble Upstanding person being crushed by the weight of bad circumstances. Llewellyn is a dick, and it's not hard to imagine why he struggles so much over the course of the film. Even his kindest and most good hearted benefactors don't escape unscathed from his presence. And even when he's given the big moment, when his struggles and his efforts take him all the way to a room in front of a guy who could change his entire future, he fails. He's told the same thing he's being told over the course of the movie. I don't see any money in it. Everyone looks at him and doesn't see any potential, doesn't see any future. For his part, he's uninterested in his own future as well. Llewellyn, it seems, so successfully averts success that it starts to feel almost purposeful. He even says as much to Gene, what, you want to move out to the suburbs? have some kids lead a life. That's what music is to you. He's offended at the idea of success in a traditional sense. Llewellyn may be nothing more than an unstable person who doesn't know what he wants. But I think there's a degree to which the movie is asking us to question our own standards of success. And that question of how we rate Llewellyn's success or value comes down to his music. If you conceive of the movie around Llewellyn's performances, as in if you just cut out every time he plays the guitar or every time he sings, it paints a very dour, very unredeemable portrait. But if you were to do the reverse, well, I mean, you can just search YouTube and and you can just search the songs in the film and you'll see exactly how much people love Llewellyn as a musician. I think in a spiritual sense, powerful things can erupt from a a rejection of what success actually means. Not powerful monetarily or interpersonally, but powerful in that it produces things which arrest how we perceive the world around us. When Llewellyn sings "Fare Thee Well, he's already given up on success and he sings the song with abandon. It doesn't matter if the act technically would benefit from a harmony, It doesn't matter that he's poor and friendless and stuck in a mire of unending misery. And from a spiritual perspective, I think this theme asks us a critical question. Can you begin to conceive of what you're capable of if you let go of the idea of success? Now, before we go any further, I need to state that I'm not trying to present Llewellyn as a role model. I don't think the movie is interested in that idea nor do I think the character is one to be admired or even emulated. But I think there's something significant in the way that Llewellyn is constantly berated with differing views of what his music is or should be, and arguably the whole film is him rejecting those views over and over and over again. Gene and Jim present music as an opportunity for notoriety, for fame, for money, for financial security— for the opportunity to live the physical lifestyle that they want to the gore finds llewellyn's academic benefactors present music as a quote-unquote beautiful form of self-expression something flowery and saccharine and not tied to the to the brutal reality of survival and loss and grief roland turner john goodman's heroin addicted jazz player presents music as something to be mastered to be great at in a technical sense, and he chastises Llewellyn over and over for the perceived simplicity and dullness of his quote-unquote cowboy chord music. And Bud Grossman presents music as a business, as a cold calculation of how much people will pay to hear and see you perform. One by one, Llewellyn rejects each of these visions of what it would mean for his music to be good or what it would mean for him to reach his potential. He stubbornly holds fast to the notion that he is already right, that what he has is already good enough to be successful. And I think this sticks out to me because it's something that I struggle with. On the other side of the spectrum, I am a ball of anxiety over each and everything I've ever created. I search and I search for some metric of success by which me or my art can measure up, and in the end. I lose the motivation to continue creating because I've lost faith in the intrinsic value anything associated with me might have. And though I'm sure he wouldn't recognize it, I think Llewellyn is, in a spiritual sense, seeking what is arguably the most important or elusive metric of success that there is. Self-respect. Not self-adoration, not self-loathing, but just respect a recognition of the value already inside of him and and an appreciation for his own potential. Music and artistry are difficult and are fields that bring these questions to the forefront. But I think part of the value of spiritual thinking is that these really apply to everyone. Because if you've ever looked at your life and your work and wondered, does this measure up? Could I be called successful? I think you're in the same boat as Llewellyn. And that question only partially encompasses how do others see you? I think it mostly encompasses how do you see yourself? So, Mike, I I think, um, you know, continuing the theme of the movie, this isn't exactly the brightest topic to talk about, but... It was. It really hit me watching the movie this time. Just the way that, you know, we're talking about success and value. A story I didn't have a chance to work into the essay, but I'm just going to tell very briefly, is I was I was with someone once, and I was playing a song. Um, I want to say it was Joy Division. I think it was a a, a Joy Division song. Ooh, I like And them. to be clear, Joy Division is a pretty well known band. So this person's comment was crazy, no matter what. But they were like. They really hated the song, whatever it was. And they had this thing where they were like, man, this person, like, whoever these guys are, uh, they don't matter anything. Because I haven't heard of them and I don't like them. (laughs) And compared to bands that, like, matter, real bands that matter are, like, bands that people listen to. That's obviously totally insane because, like, Joy Division is not... Like, if you had said that for a smaller band, I think more people would agree with the fact he was saying that about joy division was absolutely nuts, but that's a little bit what I was thinking about with this is I was like, man, there are some people who would look at Luella in this movie and say, point blank, he is a failure. And yeah. I think the movie does challenge that on some level. So I guess my first question is, I guess just, do you agree? Do you think that the movie is just blanket? This person is a failure, or do you think that it's, it wants you to wrestle with that question in light of his, his seeming abilities as a musician. Cause I think the music, the fact that the music hits you so hard is asking you to question that very thing.
1: Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think, I think it's definitely making you question that. Um, and I don't think he is. I mean, I, like I said, I think what's fascinating about the movie is that it's a story about the person who almost made it, or you can even argue, didn't almost make it. And it's also, I think, making you recognize that's the vast majority of people like yeah. our standards for what success means in this industry. Really, any industry is absurd. And I think the movie's pointing that out. It, it, it's not if your only metric for success is that you're a billionaire or that you have created something that breeds inspiration into millions of people, then it's like, well, good luck. The majority of yeah. human history is not those people. Um, and you're going to be a miserable person Chasing it which I, I do think It's fascinating that the movie I do think makes him War with that like he's utterly uninterested In it but he also chases it And a lot of his misery yeah. comes Out of that dichotomy within himself um, Yeah I I think what makes Llewellyn a failure to me is that he Doesn't change right sure. And it gets back to that spiritual And I don't even like the word failure Because right, that makes it sound like Again, that makes it sound
0: like he can't He can't do it at a later point. Yeah, but it also... It, it, there's a finality to failure. Yeah. It also makes it sound like
1: I have any role in, in judging that. Because I also think... Sure. When we, like when we talk about failure, we often talk about the value of the person. And I don't think that's what I want to think about with this. It's more like, bro, what are you missing out on? Like there's something better for you. There's a better posture, even if your circumstances aren't changed. There's something you can experience more from your life than you are. So it's like, when I say failure, I don't mean that in judgment. I mean that in the tragic sense where it's just like, you really want him to grow and to be healthier and to experience what he's doing in a more (laughs) sane way. Right. Um, and he, and you, and the film, I think reminds you that he won't, um, or at least not anytime soon. So, so yeah, I, don't know. I I resonate with what you said as a creative person
0: a lot. And well, and I guess that was kind of my next question is like, how much do you how, how much do you feel this struggle? So you know, I, I obviously work a lot with music projects and then a couple you know similar things like that, and it, it's having grown up around uh, pastors. I happen to know that there it is a creative process in and of itself as well. You're trying to convey something, sure, but you're trying to do it in a way that is it will have an impact on people, and that yeah. requires yeah. creativity. If you just walked up and read your last, you know, thesis, I'm sure it'd be very fascinating, but I doubt anyone would be, you know, it wouldn't move anyone in a sense. Yeah. Do you yeah. feel that same pressure in terms of, or, or I guess I should say that same question in terms of. How do I measure my success when it's such an ethereal, intangible thing? Do you do you sense that, and how do you work through that?
1: Yeah, that's a hard question, and I probably don't have a concise answer. Um, you know, it's like it's kind of paradoxical because I do think the core, one of the core tenets of a spiritual life, at least for me, has to be that my life is not about me, right? that it is something that's meant to be given away. Um, Yeah. And that's just, that comes from 12 steps that comes from, you know, my own Christian belief that comes from any number of spiritual teachers from all measures of faiths and walks of life is that, you know, a spiritual life should get you to the point where everything you have, you see as given, and thus you just seek to bless others with it. At the same time, paradoxically, I cannot. At least I have not found a way to stay sane if I am focusing on other people, especially other people's response to my work Hmm. um, as the key metric for whether it was successful or not. And part of that's just you're not going to know the vast majority of people's responses. I have had any number of conversations with close friends where years after I gave a sermon, they were like, oh, that was the best sermon I ever heard. But I didn't they never told me that when I did it. Right. And if I was sitting there being like, man, this message was only successful if someone came up to me and told me it was great or that it impacted them, I would be insane. Because the, I mean, the honest truth is 90% of people don't do that. They don't, they don't vocalize how something impacted them. Um, because actually,
0: and I'll even weigh in with another complicating factor, uh, which is well Mm -hmm. known to people, I think creatively, but and also in business, it comes up a lot which is that people are much more motivated to share negative feedback yeah. than positive feedback. 100%. Um, yeah. When people, I mean, I'm sure Mike, you've never experienced what who was angry with or dislike something that you said that probably has <laughs> never come up. Yeah, never. Uh, but it's fascinating. And the, that, and it's another complicating factor that you will actually, if you venture into a public space with creative work, the first stuff you'll hear, I mean, you know, I'm not, it's not like a, world, Like obviously people will say positive things, but a lot of the most strong feedback you will hear over the first length of time that you're doing this will be the negative people. Yeah. It um, yep. will be the people that feel most strongly about what they're saying. It's gonna come from people who are deeply dislike whatever you're doing um, for one reason or another. And that, that that's a complicating factor. That's difficult. Well, and it's, it's funny with like
1: artistic people. Uh, the people that we idolize, or that move us the most, we also just begin to assume that they know that what they're doing is powerful and effective yeah. and good. Um, like there's so many times where, you know, I've been like, I didn't know if that was any good. And someone was like, really? I thought it was amazing. I think all that you do is amazing. And you could kind of catch, it's like, Oh, you don't compliment me. Cause you just assume you've learned to assume that this is like the quality yeah. um, of what I'm doing. And you don't feel the need to encourage. Right. And, and again, that can get really gross. Cause if you start seeking that, Uh, that's pretty unhealthy. Um, But what's, so what's interesting is, you know, the motivation for me to be healthy with creative work, my motivation has to be, I hope, I hope not. I expect, but I hope that this helps people outside of myself. And yet my process and my approach to it has to be completely detached from results. I have to do it in a way that is interesting um, exciting, uplifting, building healthy for me, right? The process has to be something that I get something out of because I'm never going to, I'm never going to control how people receive it. So again, there's that paradox there. Like I, the most unhealthy I am when I write sermons is when I am super focused on delivering something that I expect results out of. Because I just stress over every single word, and I end up spending thirty hours on a message that takes thirty-five minutes to give, I get no feedback from, and those thirty-five hours are miserable. And you're like, "What was the? What was the cost? What was the payoff?" That equation is jacked, right? So yeah, it's just complicated. Again, that's not a concise answer, but it's because I don't really have no. one, right? It's, it's uh,
0: and and I would go further and say I don't think there is one. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. it's it's a complicated question, but I think those are all great points. I. I I do want to zero in on that last thing, too, just just to end this conversation. But, you know, I I think that a huge part of this is results orientation versus process orientation. Yeah. And that was something that a lot of people smarter than me told me about for a long time, but I I never really internalized properly, which is that, you know, I I think results orientation is what you're talking about when you are looking for the response, right? In a creative world, that's what that's how you measure your success. Usually like some people are frankly, just very cold, heartless, uh, Republicans, but, and it's <laughs> just, and it's just, and it's just all dollars and sets, man. It's all bottom line. You know, how much money am I going to make from this? And that is the only value by which I can assign something. Cool. Whatever. Live your stupid capitalist life. However, both of those are, I think, are equally problematic. I think it's the same problem when you're looking at it with, I just want, what, what's the positive, or what's the, the re- response I'm gonna get from people? I'm doing this so that this person will say this or that person will say that. Don't get me wrong, I think sometimes that makes good art, but I think it's unsubst- unsustainable. I think that the value of being process-focused is that it, it orients you towards the things you can actually change. Because the reality is you can't influence very much how people respond to you. Yeah. Um, And again, this gets very much into spirituality. This is why we talk about uh, living in the present all the time, because that's sort of the same thing. The idea of living in the present is basically saying, I I don't need to really spend that much time for hypothetical future situations, you know, trying to make sure I'm going to do the right thing or that other people are going to do the right thing. I don't need to spend time trying to control things in the future, trying to change things in the past, trying to change how other people around me respond to me. I need to spend time in the present just changing how I'm responding to things right now. And that is what creates real and actual change. And in the creative world, that's what that is what generates real and actual uh creative flourishing um, and genuine self-expression is that you are, you know, in the moment you are, you are adjusting and you are changing and you are not thinking about the response. Frankly, this podcast isn't a terrible example. I've mentioned it several times now, but Mike and I both feel very strongly about the initial episodes that we were like, you know, there's a lot of stuff we want to change there. But if we had stuck, if we got into that loop, which is again, a results oriented perspective of what is the final product sound like if we got stuck in that loop we would never have released this at all and we would never have improved to the point we're at now yeah um so yeah i think it's a huge part of creativity and it's a huge part of spiritual living
1: don't want to go anywhere and that's why all the same crap is going to keep happening to you because you want it to that line delivered from gene to llewellyn could be a summary of inside llewellyn davis the Cohen brothers almost build the film around it this idea that llewellyn is fundamentally a person who finds himself in the same crap over and over conflict failure heartbreak loss asking himself each time how on earth did this happen to me That theme is so pervasive in the film. A perfect example is the conversation with Roland Turner, the vitriolic, jaded, self-absorbed, drug-addicted musician. Llewellyn is almost talking to this future vision of himself who reflects longingly on his minor successes while spewing venom over his massive failures, which, of course, were never his fault. Where Roland muses that you can live your whole life only to realize that near the end of it, it somehow had become a giant bowl of crap. But it's also baked into the film's structure, as we hinted at and talked about in the podcast. We're dropped into this moment of Llewellyn's life, a slice of life that seems completely indistinct from many of the rest of his journeys, reminding us that what we see is what we would have found in any other moment we were dropped into, whether an affair, abortion, or ejection, The film seems eager to inform us that Llewellyn's mistakes are just repeats of sufferings or failures he's already been through many times before, and probably will go through again. Even the film's ending shows us that in a movie about Llewellyn, the end has to be the beginning. The art mirrors the character it portrays. Llewellyn Davis, this character whose experience of life can be summarized simply, as every day is exactly the same who has, and seemingly always will, found himself lamenting at the end of each day, the same crap keeps happening to me, and I just don't know why. And in that, I found Llewellyn to be an incredibly personal and human character, especially in terms of what the 12-step program calls character defects. That is, any imperfection in how a person thinks or behaves, habitual, emotional, mental, or behavioral patterns, that are unhealthy, or exist outside of reality, or that simply negatively impact the person's life. Some way that we as human beings learned over the course of our life that one plus one equals five in how we experience and respond to our world. They form out of how we coped with wounds usually, often when we were young or at formative moments in our lives. We were abandoned, so we learned to leave relationships first or to be hyper-independent. We were hurt, so we learned to numb, control, get angry, or see danger everywhere. We are told we weren't good enough, so we learned to blame ourselves for everything. We all have these in some form, and they're incredibly hard to change. Because ultimately, they got us through past hardships. You could argue that at one point, they were good for us. If you grew up with a volatile, alcoholic father who was entirely unpredictable, It was good that you learned to read danger in seemingly calm situations because it helped you get away before he blew up and hurt you. The same could have been true for how you learned to control or manipulate, to lean into pride or self-centeredness, to become afraid. You learned these patterns. You learned to turn to these character defects because they worked, and quite frankly, they kept you safe. But herein lies the problem. They worked in the past, in these times of danger, uncertainty, or crisis, but in the present, all they really do is separate us from reality as it is. You know what I mean if you've had a thought or behavior pattern that seems to pop up over and over in situations that don't actually call for them. Someone says something and you get unreasonably angry, afraid, or prideful. 1 plus 1 equals 5. The ingredients of the situation do not match your present response. Or, as I've been told bluntly, when your response outweighs the stimuli of the present moment, you can be sure that one of your character defects has taken over. And recovery teaches that these are the real problems that we must deal with if we wish to become healthy and whole. Yes, alcoholics have a physical or genetic addiction to alcohol, and thus they must stop drinking to really heal in any meaningful way. But abstinence from alcohol is only the first step in recovery. To really heal, one must eventually pursue what they call emotional sobriety as well, reflecting on the wounds and fears they've used alcohol to numb and identifying the character defects that they have developed that have often been more harmful to them and their relationships than the actual substance itself. In other words, to truly heal, we have to learn to release these character defects, our crutches. But here's the hard part. We just don't want to. To do so, we'd often have to look at our wounds and those that they've led us to cause. We'd have to admit that we need help, that we can't fix this on our own. And y'all, that's painful. we do anything to avoid that as human beings. It's easier believing that it's other people or our circumstances that need to change for us to be fixed. To just numb or to try to clean superficial areas of our lives. To avoid looking at these painful crutches. But that's the thing. If we don't, we never change. Like Llewellyn, we repeat the same patterns with the same outcomes over and over, always wondering, how did I get here? Why is this happening to me? Living like the drunk who every night gets hammered only to wake up the next morning wondering why he keeps getting fired from his job, why he can't maintain a healthy relationship, never once questioning whether alcohol might be at the root of his problems. Without identifying our character defects, we live out that classical definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over, feeding self-centeredness, blowing up in anger, getting defensive, trying to control and manipulate, playing the victim through self-pity, fearing everything, but each time expecting different results. And when they don't change, when they don't produce the things we want, we ask, how could this happen to us? Never questioning whether that internal pattern might be to blame. And what I've found is that the truth is this, as my sponsor is always very quick to remind me, that life is fundamentally an inside job, that who we are internally produces how we respond to everything externally. Thus, we must change who we are internally, if we're ever going to exit the cycles of what we produce or the misery of our internal world that we maintain. And the 12-step program gets at how we go about identifying and healing these, learning to see the forest, not the trees, and our broken thought patterns and personal relationships. But that's its own monologue for another day. Now, I want to today sit with the importance of that internal work, Because I don't think inside Llewellyn Davis provides answers, but I do think it invites us to look at how important this is. Llewellyn Davis has never been able to look at who he is, what's broken, how he's been hurt, how he needs to change. And it's easy to judge him, but ultimately I've been there. His grief is too deep, his past wounds too heavy. I think it's just easier for him to look away, to numb to do anything but sit with, name, and change what those things have done to him and who it's led him to become. I think it's easier for him to rely on that self-centeredness, selfishness, manipulation, judgmentalism, and pride in order to limp through each day and just get by, to not look deeply into the pain that bubbles right beneath the surface and that seems to flood out in some triggered moments. I think it's easier for him, but it costs him dearly. The same crap keeps happening, because at some level, he wants it to. Or perhaps, if we are feeling more empathetic, it's more that he doesn't want to go through what he needs to in order to experience anything different, the letting go of his crutches that have gotten him this far, despite how crappy this far actually is. But that avoidance produces who we see. Someone whose trials are repeated episodes of the same sufferings and failures with different names and places. Who does the same thing each day and expects different results. Who finds himself saying, I thought I just needed a night's sleep, but I'm tired, I'm so tired. Not realizing that his tiredness comes from who he is, not what he's doing. Never realizing that life is an inside job and thus never finding the rest peace or comfort in his own skin that he seems to so desperately long for but can't find where he's at. The beginning that's the same as the end. The painful today that's the same as yesterday. The truth is I want to grab Llewellyn, shake him, and yell, life is an inside job. You can have more than where you're at. But if I'm being honest, I think that's only because so often I want to grab shake and say the same thing to myself
0: Yeah man I think that was I think that was great uh if it's okay I had some thoughts just right off the bat that uh you know I I think a lot of what you were talking about especially at the end just the way that his character is encompassing this it's some combination of inability or uh, even just fear of looking at the root cause of, of his responses to things, right? You yeah. said at one point, you know, he's unable to look at who he is. It's, it's a little bit semantic, but I would even go so far as to say he's terrified of looking at who he oh, is. Oh, yeah. yeah. And In the context of the movie, we have a very clear one-to-one, which is that, you know, Mike is sort of his past trauma, is that thing that happened to him that's like deeply infecting every single reaction he has over the course of the movie, but which we already discussed, he, he's literally unable to talk about in a meaningful way. Like the most he can do is very flatly state exactly what happened to a total stranger. Yeah. And even then that, that I think that barely counts as, as really talking about it. Um, <coughs> and and I, I think that it, it just opens up such an interesting conversation and, and I, I appreciate the way that this movie is a microcosm for that exact sort of relationship. And I'll be honest, I also never thought about the cyclical nature of the movie as part of that. It did mm. remind me, and this is a little bit off topic, but just very quickly, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite movies is in Groundhog Day
1: yeah. when,
0: uh, when Bill Murray is at the bar and he's been in that cycle two or three days And he's talking, and it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not. He's talking to the other kind of bar guys, and they're all getting a little bit drunk. And he says, do you ever feel like every day is exactly the same? Like you wake up, and you can't change anything, and you can't do anything. And one of the guys sighs and says, that about sums it up for me. And it's kind of a joke, because he's obviously talking about something very different. He's talking about literally being stuck in the same day. But it does kind of land. It is exactly sort of what we're talking about. And and it's what Llewellyn's going through that we see that he is in a cycle that he's completely unable to escape from. And the truly tragic part is that it's, there's an element to which it's his own fault that he's so stuck in it. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I, I that might've just been repeating a little bit of what you were saying, but I, I just agree that that really, that really lands for me. And I honestly never thought about it in the context of this movie.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, it's such a fascinating part of the 12 steps is that it's like hyper, almost like oppressively um, just intense about you focusing on what they say is your side of the street. Right. So if you're in an argument or you have a resentment, it grounds it in that kind of that conversation of control we had earlier, where it's like, you cannot control how another person responds or behaves or thinks or does anything towards you. So it's just like, if the goal is for you to have peace of mind, you have to find a way to clean out your closet. And in such a way that no matter how the other person responds, you are set free from that resentment, from that conflict, from letting that person live rent free inside your own head. Right. Mm. And there's just such a, the reason I say that's almost oppressive is because we don't want to do that at all. Right. I think of any conflict I've been in and I've hurt somebody, I immediately look for how they treated me in some way or something in my past, even like a trauma, I'll weaponize and be like, well, I use this person because of how this was done to me. Right. And we do that naturally. We do that without thinking to essentially self justify and to let ourselves off the hook for ownership of our own behavior. And, you know, that's just what the 12 Steps militantly is trying to make you confront is the opposite of what we see here in Llewellyn Davis, where it's you can kind of get this image of him that I find so relatable where everything is happening to him. And he has wrapped that narrative in such a way where he has no ownership over the situations he finds himself in. Um, mm. and, and, and everything seems to get played into that narrative, right? which all that really does is it just keeps him where he's at, which I think is the tragedy of the film, right? Is that he, I really do think the Coen brothers are like, he's going to he's going to always be this way. And I don't want to take away his ability to change, but I do think that so much of this movie, as with many Coen brother movies, is a morality play. We talked about this over text. So I do think they're trying to do something static there, even if that's not, necessarily how we should think about real human beings but
0: well and and um, quite frankly I think that's the that's the benefit of it not being an actual biopic because that gets messy then if it's a real person because it's like yeah people move people change they go through more I I think they are leaning into the fictional nature of the character in a good way which is like yeah it's okay if Llewellyn doesn't ever actually change he's not real so he's he's not a real human so he can't exist almost as a symbol for that kind of um, struggle of, of being unable to move, to move on in life. I, I think he's, it's perfectly valid to read that since he's not real. He's, you know, he's a fictional character.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You no, know, I was thinking of a time I was arguing with my sponsor about some resentment early on and essentially I was like, well, it's all their fault, right? That this conflict is literally someone else's fault. It's not mine. And he was like, even if that was true, which it isn't because he's, my, he's awesome like that. He likes to kick my ass, <laughs> but he was like, even if that was true, what does you, how does you telling yourself that help you change or heal mm. or get better? Because as far as I can tell, you're just sitting in this stewing and you're expecting them to come to you and weepingly say they're sorry. And he's like, and I given the st- the posture you have towards them, I don't even think that would set you free. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was just one of those gut-riching things where it's just like, there's something so practical about that, where it's like, even if that narrative is true, which it isn't, what is it doing for you? How
0: is it helping you? Right. Um, and well, there's just and some, that's exactly, yeah. sorry, real quick. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. You said practical. I was going to say pragmatic that yeah, it's one of the coolest things about um, recovery, language, spirituality in general. Those are very closely related, but in, in its essence, it's actually extremely pragmatic, because it asks you to to take stock of the things you can actually control, which is very little, and to stop trying to exercise to essentially waste energy on things that you can't. Yeah. And that sounds really simple, but it's that's the whole game. That's 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 the entire process. You can't really get to that point. Yeah. But we can improve on that certainly. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we do have a final question that Mike and I have each prepared for each other. Before we do that, I just want to say next episode, we're going to be talking about, Oh boy. Oh boy. Galaxy quest. Oh boy. Sorry. I should have waited for you to do that first.
1: Oh boy. Galaxy
0: quest. This is one of, uh, (laughs) my, uh, sneaky, like all time favorite comedies. Certainly maybe even just like sci-fi. It it might be up there. I I, have to reevaluate that. Such a good movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, because I think it did sneak under the radar, uh, I highly implore you to watch that movie. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, but first, we're going to do our final question. Uh, Mike, why don't you go ahead? Okay. John, you're a cat owner. We've uh, gotten this lockdown multiple times. We've, we've established that a lot for some reason. Yep. I don't know why it keeps yep.
1: coming up. Yeah. Well, ugh, the cats were awful in this movie, so it says something, but whatever. Um, yeah. So... How bad would you feel if you lost someone's pet? What would you do and what would you tell them?
0: Uh, I can give you my my fake fun answer and then the real answer. The fake fun answer is I would go through a whole sitcom-esque, um, you know, attempt to replace the cat that comes up in a lot of sitcoms. I do kind of what Llewellyn does, to be honest. Uh, I'd lie about it. I think no matter what, I would try to push off. Like, let's say I'm in the same situation as Llewellyn. I would try to push off uh, telling them about it for at least yeah. a little bit. Because <laughs> I would think, like, maybe I can find it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is crazy, by the way. Like, he's in New York. So it's like, dude, you're not going to find that cat again. Um, but he tries for some reason. Uh so yeah, that that's what I that's my fake answer. The real answer is I'd feel terrible and would tell someone immediately and would like, I like I I, I almost can't imagine a worse situation to find myself in. Yeah, because everyone same. I know with an animal feels very close to that animal, right? Yeah. which is good. I, you should, but uh, but like I think about like my sister's dog. I I think about your dog. Like if I let yeah. Hank out, I would never like, forgive you. Yeah, it'd be rough. Like, like on the real, you would talk to me, but it would be, it'd be icy. It wouldn't be. Yeah, good. it would be. You know what? I'd be uh, really,
1: I'd be really upset if you then hit it with a car and and then let it die.
0: I don't <laughs> think I'd tell you that part. I'll just be real. <laughs> that that's the that's the advantage of him. At that point, he doesn't know. Well, he knows that cat wasn't the gore find, so Never mind. Yeah, I was he's say, just a monster. Yeah, it's just some random cat, so it's fine uh (laughs) this is a little funny because well i'll just read you my final question again mike when we lived actually it's a little different though it's a little more i'm gonna say it's a little more pointed this could get things could get heated very quickly here okay i'm excited (laughs) mike when we lived in the same city you watched my cat every now Mm. and then when i was out of town if you at any point lost my cat and replaced her with an identical one, would you have told me follow up question? Did you ever do that? Yeah. My first re-
1: response was going to be like, well, you didn't notice. So I guess, <laughs> I guess Llewellyn was right.
0: Um, <gasps> oh yeah, my god!
1: Yeah. That's definitely a stray that I found in the bushes. <laughs> just lying around. Um, yeah, if I so I actually have like intense phobia about this when I house sit. So really? the answer is I never would have lost your cat because I go through such measures, like when I open the door to make sure the cat's not like by the door or the dog. Well, or Well, we did
0: just establish it's a it's a real thing. Like like that I, would yeah. be a truly horrifying experience. So. I
1: am the it's one of the reasons I uh, awkward laugh at that scene because I'm like that's my nightmare. That is like an yeah. absolute nightmare. Um, so yes i would tell you (laughs) That's i would almost assuredly like you know stop by the pound before calling you and see if there's like a cat i tell myself that i'm going to see if someone picked up your cat
0: but really i'd be looking for a similar cat and (laughs) or your cat Uh, but somewhere (laughs) in your braid would live the possibility i mean if i see one that looks a lot like hero Maybe John won't know. Maybe, you maybe, know, maybe I don't know. Maybe I can't tell. I haven't see, seen this guy that that's often. That's the, that's the truth. I think I would actually lean further into self-deception and just talk myself into it being hero. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah, that's hero. Hero it, was, you, you look and you're like, it's a boy. Hero, hero was a boy, right? I mean, I don't, it probably, probably they were. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember. How could it yeah. not be? So how could it not be? <laughs> I actually in hindsight i i can um, I, I can let you i can make your life a little easier it's not going to come up again but if you ever watch my cat again for some reason um she is like weirdly predisposed to not running away I oh once, i know i know it's great it's great i once left home or i once came in and i was carrying like a lot of groceries and i opened the door and i came in and i closed it with my foot and I went, I put the groceries up and then I went to the bathroom and then I was sitting in my room for a couple minutes. And eventually I got up and I was like, walked in the room and I looked over, walked in the living room, I looked over. And I noticed two things very quickly that was very disturbing. The first is the door was wide open. I had <laughs> not closed it. But I, So I like probably like almost closed it, but I didn't fully close and wind came and opened it. The second and more fascinating thing is that sitting on the threshold of the door looking out was my cat. Uh, And I don't know how long. I think it had been open for 20 to 30 minutes. And so as far as I know, she had spent the whole 20 minutes just sitting there looking. Didn't need to explore. Didn't need to. She was just like, oh, this is really cool. So I I rushed over and I closed it, but she was fine. So I don't know if you could have, unless you physically picked her up and put her outside. I don't know if you could have created a situation where she would have run away. So props to her yeah that's stockholm uh,
1: syndrome john
0: <laughs> what a what a what a hero anyways oh. uh, uh, you see what i did there uh thank you guys so much for listening we don't say this a lot but if you like the show and you know someone who you think would also enjoy it please tell them about it give us the recommendation we do really appreciate that as always i'm jonathan divine this is mike Overstreet, and uh we'll see you guys next time thank you so much for listening